I'm Bill Bubert. Stoicism changed my life, and it can change yours. Stoicism counsels self-mastery more than submission to desire. It provides a toolkit for you to live a satisfying and deliberate life and to lead others to do the same. The dash is not only the brief part on the tombstone that symbolizes your time on earth, but the process to make it all worthwhile. Hi, this is Bill. Welcome to episode two of The Dash. Who dares leads. You know, stoicism, as I've mentioned in the introduction, did change my life. And I do think that discipline is a tremendous component of successfully employing discipline in your life. To quote the great Jocko Willenick, discipline is freedom. Seems simple, seems basic, but demands mastery because convenience is very hard to beat when it comes to it trumping discipline. No, I don't want to get up that early in the morning. No, I think I'm going to procrastinate on that. No, I think that uh, that's better left to somebody else to resolve. These are all excuses that we employ. I got to say I employ and that I'm still trying to reach that level of mastery in stoicism, which is a path and a journey throughout your entire life. It's not something that one solves in one's teenage years or 20-something years and manages to take it all the way because we'd all be supermen or superwomen then, wouldn't we? Stoicism is due to discipline, but it's also living a conscious life, a deliberate life. And one thing I've noticed is that I certainly employ it with my family. I certainly employed it in home education. I certainly employed it with a lot of aspects of my life to include, of course, making a living and providing and protecting, as a good man does, for his family. What I discovered is that, I think it's a peccadillo of mine, who's familiar with all of these management books that are out there? From Maxwell to Covey to Peters and everything in between. uh, There's probably... Tens, even hundreds of thousands of these management books. And I remember recently I'm doing some programmatics at work and it demanded that I look a little further into some means by which I could be more effective and be better at my job. So I sought out a book that examined objectives and key results. It's called Measure What Matters by John Doerr. And it had come highly touted and, and um, highly recommended to me. So I took a look at it. I am not bagging on John Doerr or Maxwell or anybody else that I've mentioned or anybody that you may be familiar with in this entire management publication, management consultants industry that is out there. But what I discover is God's, he could, he could put a 200 page book. It could be in three pages. No wonder some of these a very short introduction to, a short introduction to, or the uh, these reductions of the text of these books are available as businesses in and of themselves, folks who will read that two, three, four, 500 pages and distill it down into, let's say, a 30-page book so that one can get to the bottom of it. Now, I'm very fond of that, by the way. One of the reasons that I'm fond of that is something that I've recommended in an alternate podcast that I do called Chasing Ghost in a Regular Warfare podcast, where I talk about 
deliberate reading, informed reading, riffing off of Mortimer Adler's book, How to Read a Book. I know that sounds rather self-referential, but if you haven't read How to Read a Book by Mortimer Adler, you're missing out. And it will make all of your research, reading, and improvement tasks in the future better if you do so. He talks about what he calls syntopical reading, which is where in the four levels of reading, this is the most advanced level, where one can read three to five books minimum on a subject. You name it. It could be RC aircraft. It could be military history. It could be management consulting. And what you discover is that if you are an active and informed reader who pays attention, and by the way, you drink broadly and deeply within a discipline or better yet, crossing disciplinary boundaries, what you discover is that you start to be able to interrogate these books in an active fashion to say, well, maybe that's not correct, maybe that's correct, or maybe that's what I like to refer to as the single most accurate picture that I've arrived at through my bias filters. Bias filters, of course, are my notion that objectivity doesn't exist. We are all equipped with bias filters that inform our perspectives and the way we look at the world. And, and of course, it's why I'm very fond of opinion pieces and editorials, because if I read those, instead of watching news, why do you think they call it programming? If I read those, I know what that bias filter is. I know what my bias filter is, and I can come to that single most accurate picture that I was just talking about. But what I discovered with this is that by reading in a deliberate fashion, I discover that when it comes to nonfiction books, one thing that I always do, of course you wouldn't want to do this with fiction. Once I tell you, it'll make sense. Why not? I tend to, 90% of the time, read the last chapter for two very good reasons. Number one, it tells me whether it's worth investing my time, my limited time and resources that I have in this book. And number two, it lets me know authors try to, I think for the most part, sum up their position and their notions and their conclusions, of course, in the last chapter. So if I discover that it meets one and two, worth reading, and now I know what the author is getting at, then when I start the book, what I discover is that as a result of knowing that, I am really delving into the details that the author has given me, but he's put sort of a an intention on the wall in a very large font that tells me exactly what direction he's heading in. I have an azimuth. I have a compass heading to know where he's going, and then I can better analyze the evidence and the logic and the narrative the author or authors are trying to construct in order to arrive at the conclusion that he does. So I find that really useful. Getting back to the original point of the episode, Who Dares Leads, management books, management consulting books, as I, as I mentioned, they seem to be legion. There's so many of them. And I find that so many of them not only have too many pages, but in the end, they're not very worthwhile. They're not, they're not worth much of my time. So my friend, Eric, Eric, thank you. Shout out to you. Recommended a book called The Management Myth, Why the Experts Keep Getting It Wrong by Matthew Stewart. And Stewart's got some terrific notions about management consulting. And he goes all the way back to Frederick Taylor, who is the father of, quote, scientific management, end of quote. 
And he does a great job, using one of my favorite phrases, taking a chainsaw to it. He he really does a great job of of a notion that I'm very fond of, which is that sacred cows make the best burgers, and he rends them in a delicious fashion. Let me let me quote Stewart. Quote the chief message to be communicated to managers during a consulting assignment in almost all situations was that you will be expected to work much harder than you ever had before and your chances of losing your job are infinitely greater than you have ever imagined. As savvy managers understand, consultants are the cattle prods of the modern corporation. End of quote. Now, I find that really funny. And there's this thing with management consultants, especially those who are consulting in industries in which they have no specific expertise. For instance, I work in the STEM industry. I'm a systems engineer. And sometimes people will try to inform me or tell me that there's there's a better way to do things. Now, generally, I'll, I'll listen, but for the most part, I've discovered because they don't have the subject matter expertise nor the access to the subject matter expertise that I do within my very narrow slice of corporate America, what they're asking to do isn't necessarily a good idea. Now, I want to make sure you understand this and grok this fully. One doesn't have to be a subject matter expert in a given industry with certain um, um, nips and tucks. If you want to practice good leadership, because in my mind, good leadership is, is comprised of things that most people can learn. But some people, as a matter of fact, some of the greats have a hybrid blend of nurture and nature when it comes to that. And I want to quote Stuart again. Quote, the modern idea of management is right enough to be dangerously wrong, and it has led us seriously astray. It has sent us on a mistaken quest to seek scientific answers to unscientific questions. Let me repeat that. It has sent us on a mistaken quest to seek scientific answers to unscientific questions. It offers pretended technological solutions to what are, at bottom, moral and political problems. That's lowercase political. It conjures an illusion easily exploited about the nature and value of management expertise. It induces us to devote formative years to training in subjects that do not exist. It favors a naive view of the sources of mismanagement, making it harder to check abuses of corporate power. Above all, it contributes to a misunderstanding about the sources of our prosperity, leading us to neglect the social, moral, and political infrastructure on which our well-being depends, end of quote. To which I say, wow and preach it, Matthew Stewart. You know, what he does is, when you go through this book, one by one, he tears apart Frederick Taylor, the father of scientific management. Frederick Taylor, at the beginning of the 20th, 20th century, was the guy who was consulted and retained and hired on by some of the automotive magnates to go to their assembly lines with a clipboard and a stopwatch and determine the very best ways for manufacturers to not only distill all the line workers in a coherent and logical fashion, but also to see what sequence works best. What sequence is parallel? What sequence is serial? The distinction between those two, by the way, is parallel means 
both those sequences in the build can take place at the same time, whereas serial would be one must have the frame on the car in order to put the body on the car in order for the one to put the hood or the fenders on the car, those infrastructure parts that precede it must be there and you can't do them at the same time. Those are serial operations on an automotive assembly line. Whereas parallel could be, somebody could be putting the hood on and fashioning seats at the same time. And then of course we have something called a critical path in managing programs in which this is something that must occur that conjoins both of what I just spoke about, serial and, and parallel processes, but if this isn't achieved, it won't be complete. So Frederick Taylor gets on there with his, his stopwatch. There's this apocryphal story of a young management consultant. And by the way, I'm, I happen to be a fan of this. 1920s, 1930s, goes to Henry Ford and says, look, for set a set amount of money, I'm not going to say what that amount was that I heard because it seemed ridiculous at the time. I think it was $10,000. Who knows whether that's true or not as far as the amount. But all he told Henry Ford was, with a notebook and a pen or a pencil, if this is placed in the pocket of all of your management across the entire line, betterment, organizational effectiveness, and process improvement will be able to take place because folks will take notes, they'll meet, and then there will be a meeting of the minds and things will work. Ford was so convinced after he saw this in a trial run for several months that he did remunerate the uh, person who gave him that idea. And there it is, pen and paper. I live by pen and paper with what my teams funnily call my dry pad, which is my iPad folder in which I put my notebooks that I inevitably am writing on or writing in all the time. So I mentioned... He takes a chainsaw to Frederick Taylor. He takes a chainsaw to Elton Mayo of the famous Hawthorne effect. Uh, management consultants, strategy as a science, popular management gurus, Covey Maxwell et al. And he offers a really harsh, in my mind, well-deserved critique of masters of business administration in general. His main premises, premise, premises, is that management is not a profession on the level with medicine or law. However, management education through business schools have attempted to professionalize it. And, and you know, to that end, they have manufactured science, which is actually scientism, which is actually, in my mind, a management cargo cult in a very non-rigorous and untestable sense. With, with uh, case studies, truisms pithy quotes, these kind of things. And I just think in the end, it's, it is a waste of my time. Now, I don't want to condemn an entire sub-profession within the corporate cultures in America and the West that attempts to make things better, that attempts to make things more effective. I'm an, one, of, one of my jobs is I'm an operations research professional, and if one were to define, well, what is operations research about? Well, it's about making things better. It's about the, making them more effective. It's about making organizations more effective from the visionary framework of the entire apparatus itself all the way down to the details and how they operate within the construct with each other. So now that I've managed to rip into my personal 
vendetta against management gurus and management books and the literally entire landfills and mountains of books or mountains of electronic ephemera on Kindle and electronic books and such and the dreaded PowerPoint presentations and everything that tries to promise that if you hire this consultant, if you read this book, if you do this thing, then you will discover a way to resolve the inevitable problems that all small and large organizations have over time. And you will go on not only to make your stockholders and stakeholders incredibly happy, but you'll make lots of profit and you'll deliver on time and people will give you a larger and larger market share of what you seek to sell as a good or a service. To which I say, I have a far simpler solution. And there are going to be some things I say to which one will, will respond. Well, that's, that's rather um, base. That seems to be from the university of the intuitively obvious. And guess what? You'll probably be correct. Because if I've discovered anything in life, it's that your intermediate and advanced theoretical, professional, and vocational and avocational achievements and mastery and everything in between is based on your mastery of baselines for two reasons. Number one, without a baseline competence, you cannot achieve a larger competence in the intermediate and advanced stages of your profession, vocation, or avocation. Now, let's take a quick detour here to talk about competence. There is a sort of a chart that's out there. And what it speaks to is unconscious incompetence, conscious incompetence, conscious competence, and unconscious competence. Now, you can see from left to right, as I just uh, spoke to, what that means is that you can have people who are unconsciously incompetent because they've been doing the worst thing for so long that they do it as a battle drill. They do it naturally. They don't, they don't even have to think through their stupidity because they have taken their stupidity and they have buried it in their soul. They have made it a part of their lifestyle, their vocation, their avocation, and how they bumble through life. And then we go to the other side of the spectrum. For instance, I am a very avid shooter. I shot for a living in the military, and I've continued to try to improve my skills. And I'd mentioned battle drills a few minutes ago. What that means is that when one uses the term battle drills, whether you're a keen special operations guy, an infantry grunt, 11 Bravo, or just somebody who has competed in so many IDPA or local pistol or rifle or two-gun or three-gun competitions that just becomes something that you don't think through when that whistle goes off or when that round goes off or whatever the case may be. And you discover that you're doing some things automatically. For instance, when I started adopting a red dot on my pistol, what I discovered was that I was doing something that I haven't done for decades, which is that I was firing with both eyes open. I wasn't concentrating on the front sight. And for a year, I'm playing Where's Waldo with the red dot on my pistol and my rifle, but more so on my pistol. And then I discover 
as a result of talking to a guy far wiser than me, he said, here's what you do. You get your your dot, that red dot that is in, in my case, I, I use both uh, RMRs. Well, I use a red dot in RMRs in a Swamp Fox, and now I've gone to a Holosun. Really enjoy those. He said, so you're seven meters from the wall in your house. You're going to dry fire. Make sure that when you dry fire, all the ammunition is out of the room and that the presentation must be perfect. And I'm presenting on a light switch or an electrical outlet on the wall, seven meters away. And I have it in the holster. I'm doing that again and again and again. Takes much practice for me to get from the incompetent competence, incom- from the conscious incompetence to my conscious competence. Eventually, after what I would tell you is probably tens of thousands of live fire drills that I've conducted from holster, I am unconsciously competent in being able to take that weapon out of my holster and have it right on that light switch or electrical outlet with both eyes as a result of the work that I put into this. Malcolm Gladwell will be proud of me, not necessarily for using a weapon, which I think he's something of a hoplophobe about, but for the fact that I'm using his 10,000 hours or his 10,000 fill-in-the-blank to achieve that kind of mastery and competence. Now, we're going to take one more segue because we've covered the competence and incompetence spectrum, and that's this, another apocryphal story, but it makes perfect sense to me. And that's that the Wehrmacht had a quad chart. So in each corner, those four corners, you had stupid, intelligent, industrious, and lazy. And the Wehrmacht, the general staff, the historical contingents, all of them were seeking a way to determine who would make the best commanders. Now, this could be command at any rank in the NCO ranks and any rank in the... um, the Wehrmacht at the time in the officer corps. Unlike American and Western forces who have to know the mission and intent three levels up, the Wehrmacht since 1805 had always inculcated in their officer corps, for instance, that you would know the intent four levels up. Hence, if I'm a platoon leader, I know my regimental or brigade commander's intent for the coming battle or imbroglio. If I'm a company commander, then I would probably know my division commander's intent. What this did, again, apocryphally, is that it allowed, with that knowledge of intent, a picture is worth a thousand words, so give me two sentences to tell me where you're trying to get to. They, were, they, they would have occasions where the entire command structure had been sundered, injured, killed, whatever the case may be. They're going lower and lower in rank to command these large armies of men. But when a captain has to take over for a colonel or a general officer, since he knows the intent, he can fight the fight. And the conclusion that they come to is that they certainly don't want the worst of the worst, which would be stupid, industrious officers. They want lazy, intelligent officers. Now, to a certain extent... To a certain extent, this seems counterintuitive, but it's not. The reason why they want lazy, intelligent officers is because they want 
officers, and combat leaders, not only who have resident knowledge from all of their training, resident knowledge in the field, having actually been conducting combat, resident knowledge of the plan that is trying to be worked in concert with those to their left and right, but if somebody has a lazy predisposition, and I certainly have a a hankering for that myself, they tend to be very good at delegating. And to me, among the many tools that one brings out of the management leadership toolbox, not only do you have to be intelligent, not only do you have to be able to make connections of those finer details to the visionary framework and everything in between, but if you delegate properly, things are going to work out really well for the most part all parts being equal. And if you delegate, let's say, to a maximum of four to seven people, that is within, and the Stoics love this, Epictetus would applaud me for this, that would be within your span of control. Because your span of control is the means by which you can influence things indirectly. I repeat, Your span of control and your savvy way to use that is the way you can influence things to your liking and calibration indirectly. So again, after that segue into those two notions, I want to go back to baselines, baselines, baselines. Because in the end, you want to live, as the Stoics would inform us, a deliberate life. And you don't want to be a pinball. For instance, when I was rearing my children, I would set them aside, uh, I would set them down on occasion and in their teens, of course. I'd say, so where do you want to be? Get an eight and a half by 11 piece of paper. They'd be sitting across from me at the table. And I'd write in there five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years. Post-collegiate career, or two of my sons, of my three sons, have chosen not to go to college. I thank the gods for that. My uh, senior son is a mechanical engineer, both bachelor and master's, and he is not a uh, worse person for it. He's extraordinary in so many ways, and he's using it to great effect, and he still managed to retain his moral and intellectual center in spite of going to university in modern-day America. Because if I sat down with him and did this, and I've done this kind of mentoring and coaching at work too throughout my work life, both in uniform and out, then what I can do, I wish somebody had done it with me when I was a um, an older teenager and entering into my 20s, I can have a really deliberate compass azimuth for where I'm going and how to get there and not be subject to fair winds and not be subject to random circumstances and such because I am, to use the hoary old cliche, a master of my own destiny and captain of my fate if I deliberately try to do things. Because as a wise guy told me once before, a lot of good luck is, um, is part of meticulous planning. And I live by that. And I want to emphasize something else, and that's this. Eccentricity. I'm a military history buff. And I had mentioned earlier that I do have another podcast called Chasing Ghost, an an Irregular Warfare Podcast, in which not only do I speak to contemporary events, but I also speak to the historical record. And I examine a lot of of the darker and cobwebbed corners of history, and I try to link them up on occasion with their butterfly effect 
unintended consequences and consequences and webbing with other things that occur in history. And what I discover, for instance, is that since 1945, the West and the U.S. primarily has failed to win a single conflict. Now, one can um, debate me or we can discuss online sometime, if you like, or, or via email, the 1991 Persian Gulf War. But I would tell you the Persian Gulf War in 1991 was a failure because we went back in 2003. But all that being the case, what I want to emphasize is that while I'm talking here about deliberation and stuff, I do not ever want any of my listeners to think that you can't be eccentric. I happen to think that eccentricity may be the key harnessed to certain other things and um, qualities that people have, for instance, the autism spectrum. And we can speak about that in future episodes. I happen to be of the conceit that if it weren't for the autism spectrum, we would not have the engineering, scientific, and mathematical strides and leaps forward that we've had over the past few decades. So if I leave you with anything, I want to leave you with this. It's all about baselines, baselines, baselines. You cannot, number one, measure your success or your path to success unless you've baselined where you are before. There's somebody out there who said that if you don't know what happened, you can't possibly know where you are now, for instance, with history. If you don't pay attention to history to torture George's Santayana, uh, you know, what we don't, we, we are not only doomed to repeat it, but we're, we're, we're doomed to rhyme with it. So what I'd like to leave you with is this. I want you to start reading, but I don't want you reading management guru books. I'd also like you to sit down tonight, today, this week, this month with a loved one or a close friend. Take that eight and a half inch by 11 inch piece of paper, put it in front of you, draw a single line across it and put on there one year, two years, five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years. And ask yourself, start at the right, start at 20 years. Where do I want to be? And then you'll be able to template backwards what you want to do. Now, some may ask, well, Bill, what does this have to do with stoicism? Well, let's go back to the first few minutes of this podcast. As a matter of fact, to the first few minutes of the first episode of this podcast. It's about discipline. It's about harmony. It's about tranquility. It's about doing the right thing. And that is the best business advice I've ever had. This is Bill signing off. If you wish to correspond with me, you can write with uh, questions about this very podcast, and you can write to me at tdpodcast at pm.me. That's tdpodcast at pm.me. This is Bill, out. <laughs>